Okay, can you open up your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 7 this morning? Joshua chapter 7. Now, I'm in two minds because I want to do the complete 26 verses this morning. And part of me feels as if we should read the whole passage before we uh, begin so we get an appraisal of the story. Um, But then that would elongate the talk by an extra five minutes. So I think maybe what we'll do if it's okay with you, is we won't read the story, we'll just work our way through it as we go. Okay, but it's the story of um, uh, Joshua and Israel's defeat at the city of Ai. So this is Joshua chapter 7. Of course, Joshua chapter 6 was a chapter of victory. Now we have a chapter of failure and defeat. Although actually, I've I've already misled you by saying go to Joshua chapter 7, because I, I do want to start in Deuteronomy in a verse there in Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. And I want to read verses uh, 10 to 12. Deuteronomy 11 verses 10 to 12, where it says, For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of your, the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. Israel had spent 430 years in Egypt and the Lord of course, delivered Israel from Egypt, from slavery, and the Lord was leading Israel into Canaan to the promised land. And uh, Egypt and Canaan are two similar countries inasmuch they have a river running through them. Of course, Egypt uh, has the Nile running through that and Canaan has um, Jordan running through it. But that's really where the similarities come to an end because the geography and the topography of both countries is very different. Egypt is desert uh, and it is very flat, whereas Canaan is fertile and uh, is made up of hills and valleys. And it's interesting, it says there in verse 10 that Egypt is watered by foot, whereas it says in verse 12 that Canaan drinks water from the rain of heaven. One has to be uh, watered by foot, the others, the rain comes from heaven. And we read there also that uh, Canaan is, um, uh, in verse 11, a land of hills and valleys. If Egypt is a picture of the life of sin and the world, the the geography of that land is also a picture of the geography of the life of sin and the world. It is watered by foot, i.e. it is managed by human effort, And it is flat desert, i.e. there is no life within Egypt, within the world. But if Canaan is a picture of the spiritual life, the life of faith, the geography of that land is also a picture of the geography of the life of faith. It is watered by heaven, i.e. it is fed and sustained by God. And it has hills and valleys, i.e. it has hills of victory and valleys of discouragement. And if you are pressing forward in your spiritual walk into the land of Canaan, into the fullness of God, you will experience hills of victory and you will experience valleys of discouragement. And we know that 
as we enter into Joshua chapter 7, we are going to encounter some discouragement. And there's an ominous sign with the very first word of Joshua 7 where it says the word, but. Israel is walking in and living by faith. They have experienced the hill of victory in Jericho. They have conquered that mighty city, that mighty fortress. But now they will experience the valley of defeat and discouragement at Ai. And as believers in Christ, we will have those hills of victory and we will have valleys of defeat and discouragement. And what causes those defeats? What, how do we deal with discouragements in our Christian walk? Well, hopefully we'll get answers to those questions as we press on. Let's read verse one. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. So we start off looking at a disobedient soldier, a disobedient soldier. And uh, the name of this soldier was Achan, or, or it could have been pronounced Achar. And he was from the tribe of Judah. And Achan means troubler or trouble. And uh, Joshua uses a wordplay on his name in verse 25 of uh, Joshua 7, where he says, And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So he uses a wordplay on Achan's name to talk about the recompense that Achan will receive toward the end of the chapter. And uh, we see that Achan will be judged and buried in the valley of Achor, which means the valley of trouble. So a man whose name means trouble will be eventually be buried in the valley of trouble. And Achan's disobedience, we will see, is the cause of Israel's one and only military defeat in the Canaan campaign. His disobedience will bring defeat for the whole of Israel and it will result in the death of 36 soldiers. We should never underestimate the amount of damage one man outside the will of God can inflict. We should never underestimate the amount of damage one man outside the will of God can inflict like Achan. If you think about Abraham, he operated outside the will of God and went down to Egypt and it almost cost him his wife. David disobeyed God and operated outside of the will of God and it caused the death of 70,000 people. And Jonah operated outside of the will of God and it almost cost the lives of a complete ship's company if he hadn't jumped over the side. And we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, need to be diligent in rooting out and dealing sin with sin in church because one sin can bring defeat uh, upon an entire congregation if we're not careful. That's why Paul exhorted the Corinthians to discipline the disobedient man caught in sexual sin in uh, their fellowship. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we should never forget Galatians 5 verse 9 where it says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If we tolerate a little sin in the camp, it will soon spread and have a devastating effect. This is also reflected in Hebrews 12 verse 15, where it says, Looking diligently, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up 
should cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. If we allow bitterness, if we allow trouble to grow up in the fellowship, many people can become defiled by it. It might just be one person, but we should never underestimate the damage one man outside of the will of God can inflict, as Achan does. And it's interesting, though Achan committed the sin, we read in verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass. And then in verse 11, we read, Israel has sinned. So even though um, Achan was the individual that sinned, the entire blame seemed to rest at the feet of the whole nation. And we see that Israel is the wife of Jehovah and she was to be undefiled without spot or blemish. And yet one sin defiled the entire camp. One sin defiled the entire uh, wife of Jehovah. And we should remember that the church of Jesus Christ is one body, as it is described in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. And any weakness or infection in a single member of the body affects the whole body. I'm sure we're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where it says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. And it shows that if one person is affected by something, it affects the entire body. So we need to be careful about our conduct because it does have a knock-on effect to everybody else. So let's uh, look at his sin a little bit more closely, the sin of this man. We can see that in verses 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Now, Achan, along with the whole of Israel, had heard the order given by his earthly commander, which in turn he had received from his heavenly commander in Joshua 6. In Joshua 6, uh, verse 17, we read, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the prostitute shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, keep yourselves from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Jericho was Israel's first victory in the land of Canaan, and the first fruits always belonged to the Lord. And these first fruits from Jericho should have been given to God, but Achan kept them for himself. Achan disobeyed a direct order from his earthly commander, but he also disobeyed a direct order from his heavenly commander, God. And this disobedience led to sin and death. Now, it's interesting. Achan saw the treasure. Then he coveted the treasure and then he took the treasure. This is exactly the same pattern of sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. 
If you remember, Eve saw the fruit, then she coveted the fruit, then she took the fruit. The, what, the same sin that affected the whole of mankind is the same sin that affects the whole of Israel here. Never be fooled into thinking that your sin only affects you. Your sin always has a knock-on effect and always touches other people's lives and affects them too. So I want to look at just a little bit more closer at Achan and see that he committed four mistakes. Four mistakes. The first mistake is he looked twice. No doubt he went into the tent and he saw the treasure there. And he should have taken it and just given it to the Lord or given it to whoever was collecting things for the Lord. But he takes a second glance. And when he took a second glance at this treasure, that's when sin started to creep into his heart. And that's a warning for us. When we look twice at something, when we give things a second thought that we shouldn't be looking at, that's when sin starts to creep in. And we shouldn't repeat that mistake ourselves. The second mistake he made is that he reclassified that treasure. He reclassified it. God said that the treasures were consecrated to the Lord. But Achan said they are spoils. He reclassified something that should have been consecrated to God as spoils for himself. And we need to be very careful when we reclassify things when God has clearly designated them. Uh, Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we're living in a society that are reclassifying things that God has designated. God has designated that marriage is between a man and woman, but society is reclassifying that as between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. God has clearly designated what is a man and what is a woman? But society is reclassifying that through transgenderism. And that is a tremendous mistake and a tremendous sin. But that's the same sin that Achan was committing here, reclassifying things. The third mistake that Achan made was to covet. Instead of lifting his heart to God, he imagined in his heart how the treasures would lift him. James 1 verse 14 says... But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And it was by his own desires, by his covetousness, that Achan was tempted and drawn away. And the fourth and final mistake he made was to hide uh, what he had done. And it's a tremendous mistake to think that you can conceal your sin. Remember, Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin, but it was a very uh, foolish thing. It never succeeded. Sin can never be covered. Sin can never be concealed. It can only either lead to being cleansed or being condemned. And don't forget what Numbers 32, 23 says. Be sure your sin will find you out. Don't try to hide your sin. Your sin will find you out. And we can all be Achans and we can all make the same mistakes. So now, so we have seen a disobedient soldier now let's look at a defeated army. Carry on reading from verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. 
So the men went up and spied out I, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of I are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of I. And the men of I struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Now Joshua was an experienced commander. He surveyed the situation, he sent out spies, and he developed a strategy based upon the intelligence received. But Joshua committed an error. And that error was not his lack of military experience. That error was he did not consult the Lord. He put his faith and uh, sorry, he, um, yeah, he did not consult the Lord. He put his faith in the word of the spies instead of seeking the word of the Lord. And this was a tremendous error. And this is a warning for all spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders must constantly seek the word of the Lord, determined to determine God's will for each situation, because we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. We should always be consulting the Lord for direction. And indeed, us, uh, I would ask every member of this congregation to pay for Ian and I as we seek the Lord for guidance and direction, because we need your prayers that God would illuminate and we would hear how he is guiding us. You know, if Joshua had called, just called a prayer meeting, the Lord would have shown him that there was sin in the camp and the matter could have been dealt with and the lives of 36 men would have been saved and Israel would have escaped a humiliating defeat. What entered the mind of Joshua and Israel, I wonder? Did the victory at Jericho give rise to undue self-confidence, do you think? And did that self-confidence lead to presumption and possibly even pride that we've done Jericho now Ai is going to be much easier I mean after all I was a smaller city it was less fortified it was on a hill 1700 feet above sea level but surely victory was inevitable from a human point of view but oh what a mistake to think that our perspective is the right perspective Remember Isaiah 55 verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. We always need the mind of God in every situation. Never be fooled into thinking that our point of view is the right point of view. Otherwise we will march up the, eye, the, up the hill to the eyes of life, full of self-confidence, only to flee down, leaving death and defeat in our wake. Remember Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction. Let's not have self-confidence, but let's always seek the Lord for his guidance. So we've seen a defeated uh, army. Now let's see uh, a discouraged leader. Reading from verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had 
being content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? We read in Joshua 6 verse 27 that Joshua was magnified. Here now we see that Israel's leader is mortified. Have you ever had your best plans fall to pieces before your very eyes? Have you ever faced almost certain success only to be greeted by unexpected defeat? Then you know something of what Joshua felt at this moment. You know, the Israelis are not like the British. There is not the same stiff upper lip. There is not the stoic resistance to emotion. There is not the big boys don't cry type of thought that we often see within the British. Israel's are very expressive with their uh, emotion. Grief is very visible, as we see here. They tore their clothes and they put dust on their head. And their emotion is very vocal. They cried out, alas, Lord God. Their mourning is very public, laying on the earth, their face before the ark. And it's interesting, the tables had turned. The heart of the Canaanites had formerly melted when they heard of the conquests of Israel. But now it's the heart of Israel who melted like water. Everything was upside down because of this one sin that had come into the camp. This defeat not only hit Israel hard, it hit Israel's commander hard too. Joshua had not known defeat until now. And filled with distress and discouragement, Joshua and the elders lay prostrate before the ark until evening. They spent the whole day there before the Lord, before the ark, in sackcloth and ashes. And Joshua humbled himself before the Lord in remorse. If only Joshua had humbled himself before the Lord before the battle had launched. And of course the ark symbolizes the presence of God. And when you're defeated and when you're discouraged, the place to go is the presence of Lord, to spend time in his presence and seek his face. That's the only true comfort and encouragement that you'll get is if you go to the Lord. Now, we spoke before about wilderness believers and warrior believers. And if we think about the uh, Israelis who were in the wilderness, they were those who did not inherit the fullness of the promised land, of course. And they were filled with unbelief and despair on a regular basis. Uh, in Exodus 14, verse 11, they are quoted as saying, Oh, that we had stayed where we were. If only we hadn't left the land of Egypt. In his defeat and discouragement, Joshua spoke with the very self-same despair. He said, oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. If only we hadn't had the you know, temerity to try push forward in God. And he took on the character of a wilderness Christian instead of a warrior Christian. He moved from operating in the spirit to walking after the flesh. You know, if you walk by faith, you will claim all that God has for you. But if you walk in unbelief, you will always be content to settle for something less than God's best. And here was Joshua wishing he'd settled for second best by not crossing the Jordan. 
Hebrews 6 verse 1 calls us to let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to perfection. And the Lord sometimes allows us to experience humiliating defeats, to test our faith, to reveal what is going on in our hearts and to provoke us to cry out to him so that eventually we will go on to perfection. He doesn't want us to settle for second best. He wants us to press on to all that he has for us. Now, Joshua's prayer does reveal an attitude of repentance, I believe. Israel's defeat robbed God of glory. And for this, Joshua was truly sorry. Joshua's reputation had been dented before Israel and the Canaanites. And Israel had lost the place of fear in the Canaanite hearts. But Joshua was not concerned about his fame or about Israel's conquest. Joshua was concerned with the glory of God as we read there at the end of verse 9. Then what will you do for your great name? And that begs the question, where does our concern lie? Does it concern with our fame? Does it concern with, is it concerned with our conquests and our victories? Or are we concerned with the glory of God and his great name? Reading on in verse 10, we read, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they had become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Joshua lay prostrate before the Lord until evening. The Lord allowed Joshua to come to the end of himself. And only then was Joshua ready to hear the word of the Lord. And once that word had been received and heard, it was time to rise and respond. Get up, says the Lord. You see, there's a time to pray and there's a time to act. And we pray until we hear the word of the Lord. And when we've received the word of the Lord, then it is time to act. The Lord showed Joshua that Israel had sinned, that sin needed to be dealt with, and Israel was guilty of stealing from the Lord, that evil had to be punished and purged from the nation. And we see that there had to be a sanctifying. You remember Israel had to be sanctified before crossing the Jordan. Now Israel had to be sanctified again before dealing with the enemy in their camp. Both were steps, necessary steps to move forward In the spiritual life of Israel, both required faith, both required sanctification. 
And each step forward in our spiritual life requires faith and requires sanctification, a further setting apart to the Lord. So in the morning there would be a gradual sifting of the people and gradually the sin would be brought to the surface. And once once the sin was exposed, it could be dealt with. And in the same way, the Lord sifts the heart of the believer through hardship and trial and gradually sin is brought to the surface in our lives. And once it's exposed, it too can be dealt with. It can be crucified with Christ. And we see here that the guilty party would be executed. It says burned with fire. This shows the Lord's hatred of sin, that he wants it utterly and uh, totally uh, obliterated. But the fact that it is burned with fire also foreshadows the ultimate punishment of all sin in the lake of fire. So the word went around the camp, sanctify yourselves. Tomorrow the Lord will expose the sin in the camp that is spelt defeat. And I'm wondering, did Achan get a, a, a moment's sleep that night, knowing that he had all those treasures buried in his tent? So we have seen a disobedient soldier. We have seen a defeated army. We have seen a discouraged leader. Now we will see a discovered sinner. A discovered sinner. Let's read from verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the clan of Judah and he took the family of the Zerites. And he brought the family of the Zerites man by man and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Yeah, it was taken. So there's a searching process. And I'm reminded of Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10, where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Well, the answer is given in the very next verse where it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. The Lord knew the heart of Achan, as he knows all of our hearts, and nothing could be concealed or hidden from the Lord. Jeremiah 23 verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? There is no way, no place that a sinner can go to hide from God. God will find them and God will judge them. Uh, Amos 9 verse 3 says, And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. And though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent that it shall bite them. And again in Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And here we see that no matter how well hidden the treasure was in Achan's tent, it was exposed. And the Lord was systematic in seeking out the rotten apple in the barrel. Israel was first sifted by tribe and Judah was selected. Second, sifted by clan and the Zerites was selected. Third, sifted by household and the house of Zabdi was selected and finally sifted man by man and Achan was selected. And we don't quite know how this process of identification took place. Perhaps the high priest used the ephod or it could be that lots were used. It's not said. 
but the Lord clearly identifies the sinner. And I wonder what the camp was like at this moment in time. I'm sure it was full of tension and emotion. How the fear must have grown greater as the search grew narrower. How the horror must have befallen his loved ones as Achan's guilt became evident. And how the sense of justice may have filled the families of the 36 slain men as the one responsible for their deaths came to light. Let's carry on reading verse 19. So Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you to give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. And so Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And there it was hidden, in his tent, with the silver under it. And took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Now the criminal has been identified, he is brought to trial. And Joshua is the judge. And Joshua bid Achan... Give glory to God. Now that is the uh, equivalent to our modern, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And Achan was honourable enough to make confession, and he said, I have sinned. And I'd like to believe that that means that uh, he was had true faith in God, that his confession means that he is saved. Certainly, to say I have sinned is to echo the words spoken by King David, and uh, the prodigal son in the um, parable by Jesus. But we also know that both Pharaoh and Judas said, I have sinned as well. So quite where Achan is, I can't tell you. But Joshua acted on the confession and sent people to search out Achan's tent. And there the incriminating evidence was found and the uncursed thing was uh, uncovered. Now remember the judicial process that Moses had instituted. It says in Deuteronomy 17 verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And Joshua had two witnesses. He had the witness of Achan's confession and he had the witness of the evidence discovered from his tent. So Achan could rightly be convicted and sentenced. So let's look at this sentence in the final verses. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones And they burned him with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. And therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. The judgment was swift. Achan, along with his cattle, and it would seem along with his children too, were taken to the Valley of Achor. And there they were stoned to death. And then afterwards, 
they were burned. Now this is troubling to some as it appears that the innocent children were punished for their father's guilt. But I'd like to remind you of that Mosaic law forbade transferal of punishment. Um, the guilty party had always to bear the weight of their own sin. Deuteronomy 24 verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Now we don't have all the information in, contained in this text, but if the children are stoned to death as well, I think we can conclude that these children were of a reasonable age of accountability. They weren't young children, they were older children. So they were of an age of accountability to face their crimes. But also they were probably both aware of, uh, aware of and guilty of assisting in this crime of concealing these treasures. And so we see here an entire family who had turned from the living God, I believe. Nevertheless, this is a shocking and horrific event in the history of Israel. I think we can all agree upon that. Yet such an instance served to teach both Israel and us well that we should not treat sin lightly. We should not be, and that, but that we should be swift to expose it and we should be ruthless in dealing with it. The ashes of Achan, his family and his cattle were buried under stones and there was a memorial built there of stones. And isn't it interesting Israel now had two sets of memorial stones, one at Gilgal, a testimony to the fruit of obedience to God's word, having crossed the Jordan, and then another set of memorial stones at Achor, a testimony to the fruit of disobedience to God's word. Two memorial stones, one for obedience, one for disobedience. And I wonder, where do you stand today before the Lord? Do you stand at Gilgal or Achor? Are you walking in faith and obedience or are you walking in sin and disobedience? Are you holding accursed things, treasure in your tent that you should not be trying to hide? I will close with the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen.